You're listening to highlights from the Creative Processes interview with Catherine Curtin and Kate Muth. This podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. I don't know why we would really want to tell stories without being connected to the meaning. And I also think that, especially for women, but I do think for human beings, that is how we do be able to work as hard as we do and be able to get up the next morning and keep going, right? Is because we are working through the meaning and it actually feeds us as we're like making sense of it all, trying to make sense of it. And being in community and in communion, if I dare say that as an ex-Catholic to like be sharing a witness at what it is to be human and what it means and through this work to tell our stories. So yeah, yeah, I feel like it's a bit of a crushing experience as an industry goes. And I often feel like I'm way flung out to the side in the process of how I do the work versus how the industry wants it done, expects it done, and how the money is made and having it done. But I kind of don't care because I get one life that I'm aware of. And I just want to do it in a way that feels really good and the art feels true for me. I feel like what Kate is talking about is the depth of the pain that so many people who are walking the strike right now feel. It's the depth of the pain of the unhappy marriage between art and commerce. It is the depth of the pain of how we've changed as a society and how the internet and AI and the computer world, and it has given us so much. But it's just like, you know, you used to edit film on a flatbed. And every time you edited, you would make a cut. Like literally you would take a scissors and you would make a cut. And if you made the wrong cut, like you had to put the pieces back together. And, you know, it wasn't a simple little thing. But one of the last films that was edited on a flatbed, I believe was Angels and Insects. And if anybody looks at that film, it's a wonderful film, but you will see the difference in the edit. Because when you choose to do something really like thoughtfully and carefully, as opposed to like, you know, I could put that thing there and I could put that thing there and I could put that there. And of course, there are brilliant editors who are working, you know, but what we've done today is we've made everything so fast and so easy that I think there's something to the creative process. It being a little bit more of a, an exploration than it is a wham, bam, it's done, let's go have lunch. And I'm not saying that's like, obviously, there are much more genius creators in the world than I am. But I think there is something to the creative process where what I always love when I work with Kate is it's allowed to develop. It's called process because it's a process. When I was a kid, I, I grew up in New York City. And I used to, when I was like 13, I'd like sneak downtown on the subway and I'd go see shows at like La Mama and Wooster Group and all of these sort of heavy hitting, really alternative theaters that they're there, but I don't know that they're in the same fashion. And political process driven theater was really, for me, my first love. And I feel like in some ways, you know, we've lost touch with that because we are exist in a world that is so fast moving. And I'm not sure that's a game bonus, but fast moving to where, you know, you always have to, there always has to be a check-in. And I find working with Kate, I've always felt that I never had to fear that my process was taking a long time. There was never a sense of like, what have you got? Show it right now. Do it. Show it. What have you got? Okay. Oh, you haven't got it. It's like, there's a sense of, you know, with Kate, it's like you're being wrapped in this enormous teddy bear of artistic freedom and care. 
And I think that for me has always been a, because I do enough TV and film, you know, sometimes the bigger the budget, you know, sometimes. So I'm always glad to just relax in the creative process. And I'm always very grateful for that. I think it's why I do so much indie film, because it's really fun. The best art is political. And it gets us in conversation. And conversation should not be dangerous. I mean, we should be able to sit and hold different opinions and listen to each other and wonder about solutions and wonder is what you see for our country or for our communities on track with the way I want to see our community and our society evolve and be healthy. I want everyone to have health insurance. I want them to be housed. I want them to be able to go to school wherever they want to go to school, wherever their calling is calling them to. These are things that fundamentally, to me, make a life thrive and be meaningful. And when people thrive, when my neighbor thrives, I'm more likely to thrive. When I'm thriving, more my neighbor's more likely to thrive. So us being in communication and women holding the power of the pen, because enough with this bullshit patriarchal brokenness and war, like the fact I look at Putin's war, I look at the Ukraine, I look at what America does, I look at this violence and I go, this just makes no sense to me. This looks like petulant little children kicking each other's sandcastles over, you stupid little men. <laughs> women who love them. So, you know, we're in the world. And if we're not paying attention, you know, nobody should not be political. You have to be political if you're human on this planet, because it's not good what's going on. And what's going on requires all of us to take part in solving the problem. Death is the imperfection of life, right? Because life is just a fleeting thing for everyone, for all of us. And so there's no way that a computer, an AI can know death. So the AI can never, in that sense, know life. Because every day you walk, you think, you know, I was just on my way to do the Zoom with you guys. I just went to get, grab my bracelet, which was sitting next to my grandmother's picture. And I loved my grandmother. So what is, this is not, AI doesn't touch us because we exist on a level of such mortal frailty and mortal cruelty, and mortal love, and hate, and jealousy, and insecurity, and freedom, and joy, and wackiness, and being in the moment, that I, there's no way that when one of my neurotic fellow conspiracy theory New Yorker friends says to me that AI is the end of the world, that I'm like, it's just not possible because the world is not that permanent for any of us. You know, this is an impermanent destination that we're on. It's so, so important. And like when number 45 went into office and he emptied out all of the documentation in the EPA, he just like, he was like, empty all those files, get rid of all that research, get rid of all those researchers. I think that's clearly even now the Trumpers are like, oh, the environment it was a global warming. You know, we had a global warming problem. Well, we knew that a long time ago. And so one hopes that maybe that is one of the places that AI can improve the human condition because maybe AI and the statistical data and the non-emotional data will convince people when there's a problem and take the emotion out of the issue, because I think that's one of the reasons why issues don't move forward sometimes is that the, the emotional impact is too hot. And so, you know, maybe just 
getting it into statistics or getting it into data or getting it into numbers where people can't really deny the truth of, I mean, one plus one does equal two, you know, Women's Prison Association is a fabulous organization that everybody should be aware of. And they do things in the fall, like pack your book bag and things like that. So there's a lot of different ways to get involved with them. And they're really wonderful. And the WPA started in like the 1860s in New York because what was happening to a lot of women is they've kept their books from that time and the people that they helped and the stories that they helped. So this is sort of within the books of the WPA archives. What was happening were these women were coming over as immigrants and maybe their husbands were already here, but their husbands, maybe they got a new family or maybe they just kind of disappeared, checked out for whatever reason. Quite often the husband is documented would sell the children from that woman coming over to the industrial complex of the real factory child labor stuff. And the woman was forced to become a prostitute, which I actually think should be legalized, but obviously at that time it was not. And so the WPA had a lot of women who were immigrants who were prostitutes. And what they sought to do was to help these women not go to prison, get their children back and get jobs. And that is still what they are doing. Because the problem with the prison system is that once you're in it, once you have a record, very hard even when you get out to get that record expunged. So the whole effort is to say to a judge, if this woman who has three strikes or whatever the law is that is funneling her through the system passes through our program, I think it's a six-month program and it's difficult, then she won't go to prison. We will endeavor to get her job and to get her an apartment and to get her kids back. And that's the goal. And that has been the goal of the Women's Prison Association. And then also women coming out of prison, the goal is to get them back into the system of getting a job, getting an apartment, getting their kids back. So the Women's Prison Association, it's like a fabulous organization. It's one organization that everybody could support that is really on the right side of making society a stronger, better place. Yeah, that being incarcerated, you know, I don't know what it's like in other countries, but incarcerated people are not seen by us. They are not interacted with by us. We don't give them another thought. What we do give a thought about, though, is judgment. And we act as if we know that, oh, they've been tried. They deserve to be in there. And some do. Some are victims themselves. Much of the trajectory for women many times is they've been terribly abused themselves. And they've landed there because either they're fighting back or, you know, abject poverty. They're trying to climb out of. I just did a month of grand jury duty, (laughs) like just a month or so ago. And that's where, you know, we go and sit with 22 other people. We decide from witnesses if this case has enough proof to go to trial for the person to be arraigned, you know? It was fascinating. I think everyone should do this before they even reach 30 so they understand our judicial process. And something that I came away with was that it feels like most people who got themselves in that situation were either incredibly stupid, incredibly greedy, most of the time stupid and greedy, or they were an abject poverty, clearly like traumatizing family lineage of you could look at this person and say, it's clear they didn't have proper education. They weren't fed properly. All of these things, the hopelessness, right? So stupid and greedy is one thing. 
But what we do to people in abject poverty who have not had love, have not had proper food, they live in food deserts, or they have no education about how to take care of their body, they have had nothing but violence in their life, how we can continue to make it a practice and a policy to punish these people and then put them away, punish them some more in our brutal for-profit prison system and expect them to come out and want to be different or be different or even have the capacity to be different is obscenely naive and ignorant on behalf of our society. And we don't know enough about what happens and let alone, you know, Christian nation bullshit. We're not a Christian nation when you allow this to happen without an ounce of compassion or forethought about how we're going to take care of these people and help them to come to thriving when they get released, as is their right. You know, the vibration of a beating heart, of a human voice, of the blood pumping in our bodies is so much grander and embracing and full of story than AI could ever be or any computer or any technology. We forget, you know, when if we're in the woods, the hum of nature is distinct and it is unique. And even when we try to replicate it, we cannot replicate it in truth. And I mean, this is the thing, if we are so full of hubris and so incurious that we just keep moving past our own natural connection to the planet, that that's a shame. And that's where I think we really inherently miss out is all of us just getting swept up into this technology and forgetting to pay attention to this place we call home. People really have to engage critical thinking and look at more than one source for the story. You know, you can't look at just Fox News, even if you love Fox News. I don't care what you love. Where, you know, conversation, right? We don't know how to have conversations anymore or how to be in dialogue anymore. The fact that emotion is such a driving force in so much of this. I remember learning in debate class 101, you don't debate with emotion. You can't debate with emotion. That is not debatable quality to fight with. You can't do that. So, you know, we are just like wildly hot on fire going at each other. Nothing rational is going to come out of that because it is heated and so on fire. So we can't enter with emotion. And this is, again, goes back to the arts, which is, I firmly believe, puts us into a practice of being in dialogue, in learning how to reflect. What did I just see? How did it make me feel? How do I feel about that? What did that stir in me? How am I changed after I leave this performance or that gallery? Unfortunately, our education system is not teaching our students actually how to engage with the arts. They teach us how to pass time and pat it on the head and get lip service to the arts. You absolutely should be changed in some way after viewing any kind of art, no matter the genre. And also the development of critical thinking, the powers of critical thinking. Yeah. You constantly live in question. Like I get a newsfeed from like 10 different news organizations. And I think part of the disenfranchisement of the good name of the Democrat, the disenfranchisement of the good name of the Republican, all of us have been vilified. So we no longer trust each other. And it's from both sides. Mm-hmm. Instead of understanding that we're actually probably a lot more similar than we are different. And, you know, I'm just another human being who believes in education and I'd like to be able to go home at night and walk safely on the streets and to be able to buy food and make a living. Like we all want the same thing, you know, 
there's too much distance between person to person. There's too much distance between us. I was listening to one AI robots. They talk through whole conversations telling us who they are now. And this AI robot said that, which was interesting and fun, she would be a better leader than a human because she's able to be impartial. I would say just in companion is to read, 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 and never stop reading. And like, I'm talking about like books, actual books where you turn the pages, you smell the pages, you underline your favorite bits, you underline the parts you don't understand, you read and read and follow that curiosity and work towards greater compassion. You know, I think that there's enough on this planet for all of us to thrive. Read and read the fine print. Read the fine print. That is what every single person can do it. It's really boring. It's annihilatingly like your brain just goes dead. They do that for but a reason. They, the fine print is there for a reason. And so don't get caught not knowing the fine print. Because if you know the fine print, you can figure out all sorts of things. And everyone needs to become self-educated in that way so that you can play the game and the game does not play you. That's very important, you know, and I know this wasn't a totally arts oriented conversation, but the arts are about protecting the human spirit. And I think as artists, we live difficult lives. There's years where I've made $16,000, like, and I never stopped working. I worked seven days a week, you know, there was one year where I think I did 60 different jobs and I made like less than $68,000. Literally, I did that many jobs. So the arts are difficult, but you have to understand how to take care of yourself. And that is about the fine print and be educated, educate yourself. We hope you've enjoyed listening to these highlights. To listen to the latest episodes or learn more about participating in exhibitions or interviews, click on subscribe. Thank you for listening.